0: Welcome to Scum of the Earth Church's Christmas Eve service. Merry Christmas. Why don't you say Merry Christmas to someone next to you? Oh, good times. If you've ever come to one of the Scum of the Earth Christmas Eve services or Christmas services, the way we do it is a little bit different. It is um, in the liturgical fashion. So we will have um, Christmas carols, readings from the Bible, Original poems and responsive readings in which a speaker will come up here and read and we will respond So we're going to be doing that pattern a few times Um, So yeah, enjoy everything keep your eye on the screen because things will change quickly. Let me pray Father God, thank you so much Lord for Christmas Eve. Thank you father for family for friends for people that we just meet tonight that we We don't even know are friends yet. Thank you father God for the ability to worship you for your Holy Spirit, for music, for poetry, and definitely for the scripture and the truth of the prophecies. Thank you so much, Lord, for everything you've done for us. We are so excited to give this next amount of space to you, Father God, with the hustle and bustle of the holidays. It's so nice to set aside some time, God, and just worship you, and we fully expect to meet you here, Lord. Thank you for being faithful. Amen.
1: He feels so heavy, Joseph thought. Holding a well-swaddled answer to prophecy from hundreds of scrolls, each prediction light as the papyrus on which David wrote his psalms. And this baby, sleeping and nursing, comforted and held by mortals like him, this infant lying full in the dark curve of an arm where muscles sloped like the banks of the Jordan River, was so real, undeniable as the cold air the night Mary's first child was born or the heat of the midday Egyptian sun when she sat in the only shade they could afford, holding thin daydreams of home and a dark-haired two-year-old, awaited in songs and stories, each wafting by the way smoke from incense drifts weightlessly into one sight and away, thinking, he feels so heavy, like anything of real meaning should. Like the sand and footfalls between them and Nazareth, between childhood and his coming of age, his hair growing longer, beard dark like his stepfather's, arms just as strong, and hands that knew the weight of things like truth and love, hammers and saws and nails, where his palms lay wide open, struggling to shoulder the incredible gravity of sin with a pained whisper too quiet to be heard by anyone who would write it down, Father, Father, it feels so heavy.
2: If you've been... With us, you know that we've been in a sermon series on the life of Joseph the carpenter. And I'll review that in a little bit. But first, I want to tell you a story. I found it on the internet, so you know it's got to be true. (laughs) Actually, um, it goes like this. Believe it or not, this is the transcript... Of an actual radio conversation between a US naval ship and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October of nineteen ninety five. The radio conversation was released by the Chief Naval Operations, the Chief of Naval Operations on october tenth, nineteen ninety five. The US ship radioed this. Please divert your course 0.5 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Canadians replied, Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The U.S. ship. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, Divert your course. Canadians replied, No. We say again, Divert your course. The U.S. ship responded, This is the aircraft carrier USS Coral Sea. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy. Divert your course now. The Canadians replied, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> now, I did a little more snooping around the Internet and found out that, in fact, uh, it's a story that's been around since, like, the 1930s. And it's in various forms in the U.K. and America. But it doesn't really have any basis, in fact. But it's a great story. It's a great story because, you know as americans we've had a few things go our way historically we've done some things right overall a lot of things wrong but some things right and we're enjoying the benefits of this great country that we have made and so americans have a rep- reputation around the world of being somewhat arrogant and that's why This story is funny because it has somewhat of a basis in fact, right? At least the way the rest of the world looks at us. And really, can you blame us? We've had a pretty good run for a couple of hundred years. Now, the story has a funny ending because you really can't move a lighthouse. We're going to hold that right there. We're going to go to our story about Joseph. Joseph, if you've been listening for the past four weeks, has had a pretty good run of things. Here's a man who has responded well in almost every situation, difficult or otherwise, that God has put him in. If you recall, he is engaged to be married to this young woman, Mary, and he finds out that she's pregnant while they're engaged. He decides to put her away quietly, not to make a big deal out of it, but just to just set her aside. He could have done much worse, but he didn't. So he's a pretty good dude. Then he has a dream where an angel of the Lord appears to him and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph responds well. He says, okay, and takes Mary to be his wife. There's this big tax thing going on. He's got to leave Nazareth where he's from with Mary, and he's got to go to Bethlehem in Judea, to be counted for the tax with a very pregnant woman. And he does it well. He protects her on the road. He takes care of her. He finds her a place when there is no place to stay. And then these amazing things happen. You know, shepherds come having heard from angels and whatnot. Joseph is doing very, very well. The next thing we hear about Joseph (coughs) is that it's time for the baby to be dedicated. It's time for Mary to be brought before the temple for her ritual purification. There's no angel that tells him to do this. He just reads the Bible and does it. He's a pretty good guy. A pretty good guy. He reads the Bible, does it. Doesn't need an angel every single time he does the right thing. And so he takes his wife and her young child. baby to the temple and then amazing things happen this old guy and this old woman come and they speak these prophetic words over the child and both Joseph and Mary go away amazed at the kind of things that keep on happening because they have somehow entered into this epic story Joseph's personal story, this carpenter, humble guy from Nazareth, has now intersected with this epic story of God's redemption of the whole human race. He's a pretty good guy. Then they decide to stay in Bethlehem for one or two years. Set up shop. They got a home. Weirdest thing happens. One night, there's a knock on the door. And these magi from probably Babylon who've been traveling for well over a year are showing up at their house. And there's not just three of them. There's three gifts. But there could have been dozens of magi along with an armed cohort because you don't travel with frankincense, gold, and myrrh in those times without a guard. And these guys shower the baby, with all of this wealth. But what's the baby going to do with that stuff? Nothing. Joseph has to take care of it. And he shows his character once more by not squandering it. He finds out very, very quickly what it's for. Because he has a dream that night where an angel of the Lord appears to him again and says, quick, take the child and its mother and flee to Egypt because Herod is seeking to murder the child. And so Joseph, because he is this amazing guy, this man of few words, this silent and strong hero type, gets up in the middle of the night, takes Mary and Jesus, and flees, possibly 80 miles away on foot, maybe with a donkey. To Egypt stays there for a couple years now they have some wherewithal they have some funds because of their late-night visitors just that very night and he stays there for one to two years an expatriate a stranger in a strange land an illegal immigrant if you will until He finds out from an angel that Herod, the one seeking to kill the baby, has died. And so Joseph is on his way back to Israel, is afraid to go back to Bethlehem where they had been staying because Archelaus was now ruling in Bethlehem in place of his father Herod. He knew Archelaus was a bad dude. So he's thinking, I don't know if I want to go there because I want to protect this baby. Well... Guess what? He's thinking exactly the same way that God is thinking because an angel appears to him then and confirms, do not go back to Bethlehem, but rather go elsewhere. So Joseph goes back to Nazareth and thus fulfills the prophecy that Jesus will be a Nazarene, that the light will shine from Galilee of the Gentiles. I mean, this guy is amazing just amazing. Unbroken success. He's a hero in the greatest sense of the word, who brings back the Savior to his people. And what he's bringing back from Egypt is going to change everything. He's bringing back the hope of the world. Now, if I were Joseph... I might feel like I had a corner on the truth. Like I hear God personally. I do what God says, whether it's from an angel or from the book. I go to church. I do the right thing. I'm okay. Until he comes up against the lighthouse in the form of a 12-year-old Jesus, and let's see what happens. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. This is the last time we really hear about Joseph, the last bit that he plays in the gospel story. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. See, I told you, he was a good guy. He goes to church every time he's supposed to go to church. He does what he's supposed to do. When he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Is this sounding like an episode of Home Alone? I mean, if you didn't think this is a Christmas story, this is my only tie-in right here. Home alone and Jesus being lost in Jerusalem. Fairly close. In fact, I would say the home alone people got their idea from Luke chapter 2. It's my opinion. Get this. They're out a day from Jerusalem. They've traveled for a whole day. How long does it take to get back to Jerusalem once you've been gone for a day? A day. Now they're gone two days. Now, if you guys, anybody here is a mom? All right. Do you, how would you feel? Two days. You're without your kid. You don't know where he is. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know what's happened to him. You, I mean, you're just, you, and Joseph, poor guy, he's, I've lost the Messiah. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, you're not looking forward to the next angelic visit at all. Because you have lost the Christ child. The whole salvation of the world is hanging in the balance. Three days go by. You're looking for him in Jerusalem. We're now at five days. Now, has anybody here ever been lost as a kid? Raise your hand. Have you ever lost as a child? I was. I mean, put yourself in Jesus' place. I mean, (laughs) you know where you are, but you don't know anybody around you. So who's going to feed you? Who's going to take you in at night? Who is, I mean, who's going to keep you safe? This is a crazy situation. Five days, perhaps, at the most. Five days without finding Jesus. Joseph's got to be crazy. But he's not saying much. All right, verse 45. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. This is a very Jewish scene, by the way. In American schools, teachers ask questions and students do what? They give answers, right? And not in the Jewish form of education. The Jewish form of education, you're judged on how well you know the material by the kinds of questions you ask the teacher. And Jesus is astounding them with the insight shown in his questions. Verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. <laughs> astonished. I'm not sure if that's a real word in Greek or not. Astonished. It would have been a lot more things than astonished. His And you get a, get a clue here when Mary speaks, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, I think that's fair. Why have you treated us like this? I don't think Jesus slipped away on purpose, but, you know, Mary is, honestly, just like a mom here, isn't she? And and Joseph is just like a dad because he's not saying a word. Like, he he is not going to defend Jesus at this point. He's not going to get in between Jesus and his mom at this point. He's just there, strong, silent type, just watching and go on. Your father and I have been an anxiously searching for you. And then... The lighthouse speaks. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. It was not normal for anybody to call God Father. Jesus is the first person we've ever heard of in the history of the Jewish nation to call God Father. You actually hear of rabbis after Jesus, talking about God as Father, but none beforehand. And this is so new and it's so different to their ears that you would dare call God your Father that even they didn't get it. And, you know, they were there, okay? So it was really just truth that hits you sideways. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In the hero's journey, there's a difference between what happens in the public arena and what happens in the privacy of your own home. Maybe you have heroes. Um, it might be somebody at work that you look up to. It could be a teacher, professor. It could be a pastor, small group leader, your neighbor, big brother, big sister. Aren't we all really aware that heroes have to pass the private greatness test? before we allow them to be heroes in public? I think one of the saddest things that could happen to me as a pastor is for people to say, Mike Sears was the most loving, kind, sensitive, and caring pastor I ever had in my life, and yet have my children or my wife feel like I wasn't there ever. I mean, if that is the case, and no one's perfect, but if that is overall the case, I would say don't go to church there. Because public greatness has to be preceded by private greatness. The thing I like about Joseph in this story is when Joseph comes face-to-face with God, even though he's speaking out of a 12-year-old boy body, he gives way. Doesn't berate Jesus doesn't try to discipline him. And so what I'm asking is is like when God speaks to you in the most unlikely of ways are you going to be arrogant and demand that that person give way to your thinking or are you going to be able like Joseph to humble yourself and say I give way to the truth that I hear coming out of that person? even though it's my 80-year-old grandmother who is a little crazy and about everything else she does. But this one time, she said the truth to me and I was able to submit myself to that truth. I gave way. I altered my course 15 degrees to the south. Or even though... My spouse said something that I didn't want to hear. I changed my course. I humbled myself, even though it wasn't where I thought the truth was going to come from. This is especially hard for parents when their kids begin speaking the truth to them, like it was for Joseph. But I think it's equally as hard for adult or near-adult children who are now finally independent and free to believe that their parents could still, by chance, speak truth from God into their lives. I can't tell you how much of a hero Joseph has become to me over the course of these four weeks of Advent. I am so grateful for his example. That I want to anew try and be the kind of person who privately, who doesn't have to say much, who can show his obedience by his actions to be the kind, that kind of person who follows God. Now, we don't hear anything about Joseph after this in the Gospels. We're assuming that somewhere between Jesus' 12th birthday And his 30th birthday, when he started his ministry, Joseph passed away. Because it's always Mary and Jesus' brothers coming around after that. Joseph is never mentioned again. But he was a man who fulfilled God's purpose in his own time. And I would imagine that Joseph could be arguing with God, saying, hey, look, I have done all this stuff for your grand, vast, eternal plan. And you take him out of the picture before Jesus gets to do all of his stuff. But my guess is, even on his deathbed, Joseph was submitting himself to God, adjusting his course, because a light of truth was coming at him, saying, come home. I'm adjusting your course. 15 degrees south, it's time to come home. And with a grateful heart and an obedient heart, he bowed his head and died. My guess, not scripture. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for examples of people like Joseph Joseph In the Bible, help us to be not only public heroes, but private as well. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: O silent night, are you empty or are you hope? When the wind is in a terrorizing chill, whipping the branches and claiming us for the simple sin of venturing outdoors. I stole Holiday from the mall and gave it to my sewing machine. But even then, I wished I'd given it to the altar and those four precious and slowly lit candles. It's hard to fight the sadness. The soil has rejected my fragile fingers with its solid frost. It spit back my shovel weeks ago. I'm inclined to hide inside these man-made boxes with the drying heat and cocoons of sweaters waiting for rebirth. And in this waiting, I will sit and ponder redemption. I'll try to grasp the concept of hope under this thing they call seasonal affective disorder. On these lonely nights when the only sound is the groan of some fattened but starving culture. For those of us who gave up on the cheap promise of flashy red and green, or even a Garrison keeler version of happy endings with family around large dining tables, give us our silent night of the soul. I don't care if you chopped it down and brought it in for your most hideous trimming and a sense of tradition, pagan or not. If you didn't, at least the rabbits and the birds still have their habitat. But if you did, hopefully yours will end up in the city mulch program come spring. I'm not saddened by its death. I understand the value of mulch and that death can bring much life. Evergreen, however, does mean something to me. In evergreen, there is hope. But I am deciduous. The deciduous trees have lost their leaves, but they are not dead. They are resting after a most stunning production of buds and leaves, then flowers and then fruit. But they are seasonal. They do not have antifreeze in their needles like the conifer. And like them, I will be a skeleton at the parties. So in silence with the snow and that quiet earth, that quiet earth that can't even feed the worms and certainly isn't feeding me, with my leaves and my efforts on the floor, I'll sit here and wait while my healing takes place. I'll sit here with you if you're deciduous, too. Forget the bright shining star, unless it is the small flickering stars too quickly melting the advent wax. Amen to the evergreen. Amen to the broadleaf.
4: Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace Hail the Son of Righteousness, Light and life to all he brings, Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth.
5: He died on Christmas Eve. He was born with water on the brain, a fragile flame flickering at circumstance's whim, hovering between this world and the next. They said he wouldn't live a day, but then he did. So they said he'd die before a week, and yet he lived, clinging to life's flame with a tenacity larger than his tiny frame. And the whole church prayed hard for miracles, with family always at his side, this baby born crippled by the fallen state. We prayed and hoped and cried out to God to spare this little one, more precious than sparrows and no bigger than Jesus must have been in his manger. We held tightly to the hope that every small strengthening of the flame seemed to promise, and we thought we saw a coming miracle, but then he died on Christmas Eve, and the next day the whole world woke up to celebrate miracles and gifts and candlelight, oblivious to the wick that now stood cold and the family that wept over it. The rest of the world rejoiced as if they had a right to ignore a death today in preference for a birth 2000 years ago, even if it was Jesus. How could we sing songs of light and life in the face of dark morning? And we knew we did, that he wasn't lost forever, that one day we would see him again. It was always there in the lighter layers of shadow that final hopes were never crushed, it's true. We knew that he died on Christmas Eve, and by Christmas Day he was whole, a steady flame never to be extinguished again. With our minds, we knew he was happy and well, but all our hearts could feel that day was the weight of what might have been, if only, if only there had been some miracle. We opened gifts and dressed for church in somber reflection, wondering what our pastor could possibly tell us on such a day. The family was there, and we offered awkward condolences mixed with unseasonable Christmas greetings before taking our seats unprepared for any surprise. Certainly not the story of a miracle, which is what the family now told.
3: He died on Christmas Eve, voices to bring a light to the room far brighter
5: than any single flame as they welcomed him home, his soul breaking free from the chains of his hobbled body to soar upward and away.
6: Long ago in in Israel's fear and doubt, as armies bore down on them, a whisper from Yahweh, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there was triumph for a time, but not for long. Siege, exile, subjugation, occupation. But in this occupation, to a lowly carpenter, the whisper again, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And hope sprang anew. Mary sang of hungry fed and rich brought low. But in a world of millions, You only fed tens of thousands, and the rich put you to death, and we watched you suffer and die. Where was this promise? How could you be with us when you were dead and buried in the ground? But three days later, you were back, and the whisper became a shout, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But you're leaving. You're gone. We're being persecuted. We're dying for you. Where are you now, Emmanuel? You were here on earth where we could touch you, where we could see you, where we could hear you. And you ran away and left us here alone. Where are you now when I watched dreams shattered and hopes destroyed? Where are you now, O God, with us? Yet in the silence and the stillness, as maddening as it is, I still hear. The whisper, your whisper, and I am called Emmanuel, which means God with you. And I cling to this hope, sitting in, my, in the broken pieces of my dreams, in spite of myself, I hold on, because somewhere in this world of pain and despair, I can still see the light which darkness cannot overcome. And I hear your whisper, and I am called Emmanuel. Which means God with you. And if I listen closer still, I sometimes make out another whisper, so faint I can hardly hear it. A breath across my ears, but it's getting clou- louder as the days progress. And the dwelling of God will be with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Behold, I am making everything new.